Hi, my name is Lucas. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, great to have you here this morning. If you have been tracking with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we're doing a series in theology right now. We're talking about who God is. Uh, theology, a lot of us think it's kind of should be confined to ivory towers or it's just for the intellectual or for the academic, but it's not. Theology is a real simple word. It just means words about God. Everybody speaks words about God. If you say God doesn't exist, if you say God is maniacal, if you say God is good, if you say God is near, if you say God is outdated, no matter what words you speak about God, you're speaking a theology. That's simply what theology is. And so what we've endeavored to do here is to establish Christian theology, right words about God because our theology is so relevant in it and it matters so much. So that's what we're going to do this morning is we're going to complete this little mini-series, this three-week mini-series that we've been doing in theology and fill in our blank with one more word today. And so uh, before we do that, I would invite you to pray with me as we invite God to speak to us. God, thanks for your presence here with us and your grace. Thanks that you're near. Thank you for calling men and women to yourself. God, even when we ran away from you and rebelled and went our own way and were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, because of your grace, you called us near. And God, may may even some, some folks who have never responded to that call and said yes to you, may they say yes to you today. May they hear about your grace for the very first time. In Christ's name, amen. There's a story about one of my favorite authors and Christian thinkers, and I really love the story. Uh, it's the kind of stuff that Christian lore is made of, to be totally honest. It's such a good story that I actually felt compelled to do some research online to make sure that it's actually true. You ever do that? You ever read a story and go, no way that can be true? And so I did some research online. This is actually a true story, believe it or not. So so here's the story. At a comparative religions conference at Oxford University, a number of visiting religion professors uh, were engaged in a conversation about what makes Christianity different. So essentially, all these religious scholars were in the room from all different types of faith backgrounds and different faith systems and religious systems, and they were talking about what makes Christianity different. Is it really different than other world religions, and if so, how? What makes it unique? What makes it distinct? What makes it different? And and so uh, as the scholars considered the possibilities, they discovered that every aspect of the Christian faith has a similar counterpart in other faith systems. Not exactly the same, but something similar. So Christianity, it seemed, was not that different after all. So as the story goes, an Oxford professor walked in the room who just so happened to be a Christian, and he began to listen to what had evolved into a very fierce debate. And finally, during a lull, lull, that professor asked, what's all the rumpus about? Oxford professors use words like rumpus. One scholar responded, we're talking about what makes Christianity so different. And every suggestion that we've considered, the incarnation, the resurrection, a faith community, they all seem to have counterparts in other faith systems. So what's the difference? And the professor, a guy named C.S. Lewis, who really is one of my favorite authors and Christian thinkers, responded simply, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Say that word with me, grace. Say it again, grace. So Christian theology is distinct from other world religions in a number of ways, but for Lewis, the concept of grace stood out. 
every other world religion invites individuals to gain or to enter into a process of effort or works in order to gain enlightenment or wholeness or acceptance by God. Many of us in this place come from those types of faith backgrounds. If you grew up being taught or if you're even being taught now that doing is the inroad to pleasing God, that's the kind of faith background you're in. So think about it. If you come from a religious background uh, that, that, that taught in order to be in with God or on God's good side or accepted by God, did you have to pray or fast or go to church? Did you have to follow specific rules or take communion or go to confession or meditate? Were there specific words that you had to say or something that you had to do or any work required of you in order to make God happy with you? Christianity teaches exactly the opposite. Christianity proclaims that God's love is unconditional, that it has no, nothing to do with our inner resolve or our lack of inner resolve. It has nothing to do with our character, our merit, our behavior, or our effort. Rather, the Bible affirms that God freely offers forgiveness, love, and blessing with no strings attached. Can you believe it? We call that unconditional love grace, and it's truly what makes Christianity different. So today... We complete our series in theology with these words about God. God is gracious. God is gracious. And I would submit to you this morning that when this simple truth takes root in your heart, grows, blooms, and bears fruit, it can and will radically change everything in your life. Grace can transform your self-image and the way you see others. Grace can transform your work, your play, your waking and sleeping. Grace is the only solution to your anger problem, your pride problem, your alcohol problem, your lust problem, and your greed problem. Grace can transform your marriage. It can transform your financial life. It can transform your parenting. Grace can transform the way that you engage in Christian community. Get this. You're not going to believe it. Grace can transform your experience of weather and seasons and food and art and hobbies and sports. And I'm not kidding. Grace is the only antidote for the poison of gossip, comparison, racism, and presumption. Grace is the perfect lens that brings crystal clarity to our perspective on mental illness, disability, addiction, hopelessness, and worthlessness. Grace brings new life and right perspective to life's blessings, good friends, and laughter. Grace brings liberty and moderation to those indulgences that control us sometimes. Grace can change the way that nations interact with one another, the way companies contribute to society, the way we educate our children, and the way we care for the aging. Grace can bring health and beauty back to broken relationships and broken hearts and broken homes. I've watched it happen in my own life this week in the lives of friends. Grace is the balm for every wound, the comfort for every hurt, and the fulfillment of every longing of the human soul. And most importantly, grace will radically change the way we interact with God himself. Grace can renovate your whole life. We don't have the time to unpack all the implications of grace this morning, but every renovation has a first step. And so we'll take that first step this morning by declaring this truth about God that he is Gracious, very simple and yet very profound statement that God is gracious. So just as we did last week with sovereignty, let's start by defining grace. 
A number of Bible scholars have ventured to define the grace of God, and in nearly every case, I've read a lot of them, that scholar would readily agree that defining the grace of God really is a feeble attempt. Our attempts to define amazing grace always fall very short. But with that awareness in mind that the grace of God is far beyond our comprehension, I want to submit a definition to you this morning as a summary of what the Bible has to say about grace and what Christian, historical Christian theology has also affirmed. And here's, here's the definition. It's up here on the screen. So if you're taking notes, jot this down. Grace is the free and unearned favor of God. Grace is the free and unearned favor of God. Grace is God pouring out goodness and blessing on sinners who deserve nothing but wrath and punishment and shame and separation. Grace is the free choice of a sovereign God to to extend countless blessings to his creation, even blessings that we don't recognize at all times. The very nature of grace is that it's unearned. There's nothing we did to merit grace because it cannot be bought with money, works, or effort. If you ever hear somebody connecting God's grace with their behavior, they're not talking about grace. They may be using that word grace, but that's not how grace is defined. Grace at its very core, at its very nature, is undeserved and unearned. And just as we saw Trinity, God is triune, and sovereignty, that God is in control of all things at all times, affirmed from the first page of Scripture to the very last, from tip to tail, we're going to see the same thing with the grace of God. I've picked 10 verses like I did last week, put the Scripture references up here on the screen. I would encourage you to jot them down, even exhort you to jot them down, reread them this week on your own, or even today, as you immerse yourself in the ocean that is the grace of God. So let's look at the biblical defense and the biblical support for God is gracious. When God introduces himself to Moses for the very first time, look, just side note, if God's introducing himself, we probably ought to pay attention, right? This is God talking about himself. Exodus 34 verse 6 says this to Moses. He begins this way, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Psalm 145, verse 8, affirms the same. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The prophet Joel encourages the nation of Israel to return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Get this. The prophet Isaiah says that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Listen to what he says. He says he rises to show compassion. You want to know what gets God up from his throne? The opportunity to show you grace. He rises to show compassion. Ephesians 1, 7 says God's grace is rich. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2 says that his grace brings peace and even gives us reason to boast. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 says that God's grace sustains us and even upholds us in times of weakness. Ephesians 2, 5 says that while we were dead in our sin, we talked about that last week, totally incapacitated, the grace of God has now made us alive in Christ. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that God's grace allows us to draw near to him. Acts 4 verse 33 states that grace fuels effective evangelism. I know that I went through it very, very fast. I'm watching people like try to jot things down and take a picture with your phone. We're just going to hang out here for a minute while you take time to write it down. I'm going to talk about my week while you write these down. I sledded with Kaya on Saturday 
She loves sledding. I, uh, I'm, this is just total side note. I don't have this in my notes. Okay, I'm just going to tell you a story, and then we're going to come back. This is totally unrelated to the sermon. It's just an opportunity for you to write these verses down because I think it's important. Okay, so I'm sledding with Kaya. This is my uh, 17-month-old daughter. I'm pulling her down the driveway at the house. I let her go, and the and the um, rope that I'm pulling her on the sled starts to drag behind the sled, and I accidentally stepped on it which turned her into like a 360 at a really swift pace. And I almost vomited because I was so terrified, and she's screaming with delight. Yay! This is my daughter for you, okay? Everybody got those verses written down? Good. Okay. Not only is our God a God of grace, grace permeates all that he is and all that he does. He is a God that pours out favor, blessing, goodness, and kindness on us that we did not deserve. So as I did my study this week, uh, as I kind of unpacked this sermon and, and, and wrote uh, the sermon, I started to ask a question that sparked my curiosity. So I wanted to share it with you this morning and just to help you walk this journey with me that I've been on this week as I've uh, studied the grace of God. Because answering this question for me helped me to understand God's grace just a little bit more. So here, here's the question I asked the scripture. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Have you ever asked that question before? Anybody admit, like, hey, I wonder, like, are those, are those different? Are those two things different? Are they the same? And I want you to know, when the Bible talks about the character of God, it's not using different words about God on accident. That's on purpose. Those two words are different words. They describe different aspects of his character. So I've never known the difference between mercy and grace, and so I did some research this week to try to figure it out. And, and, and as I did the research, it really helped me to understand the grace of God just a little bit more. So I wanted to share it with you, and maybe it will help you understand God's grace a little bit more. So here, here's, here's the difference. In order to delineate the difference between mercy and grace, we've got to start with justice. So let's start with justice. Justice is getting what we deserve. Okay, justice is getting what we deserve. So as sinners, when we sin, what we warrant, what we deserve is separation from God and shame and punishment immediately. That's what we deserve. Mercy, because God is merciful, God withholds the wrath that we earned for ourselves. So mercy is not getting what we deserve. Justice is what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. When we sinned, we immediately warranted exclusion from God's blessing, total separation from him, but God withheld those things. That's mercy. God is merciful throughout scripture as he withholds from individuals what they've earned by their sin. But grace, grace is different. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Listen to the difference here. Mercy is the withholding of wrath. Grace is the pouring out of blessing. Mercy is God not punishing us as we deserve. Grace is blessing despite the fact we don't deserve it. Mercy is deliverance from judgment. Grace is extending kindness to the unworthy. Mercy brings us back to a neutral position. Grace launches us into the unrestricted favor of God. God is both merciful and gracious. And interestingly enough, when the Bible talks about individuals who sinned or rebelled, when they go to God and beg for 
something, they beg for mercy. They beg for God to withhold his justice. There may be examples in the scripture where people beg for God's grace. I haven't found them yet. I'm not saying they're not there. I'm just saying I haven't found them. And I would venture to guess that the reason why is we can't even fathom God's grace. We can't even fathom that he would stop not just at withholding judgment and showing mercy, but that he would move on and also show us grace and pour out blessing, favor, kindness, goodness that we did not deserve. And that's grace. Like a man who's found guilty in a courtroom and sentenced to life in prison, a merciful judge might allow that guilty man to walk out of the courtroom free. And the right response of a man who's been shown mercy is unrelenting gratitude and a transformed life that's no longer lived as a criminal, but as an active contributor to societal good. But a gracious judge, a gracious judge does more than that. The gracious judge nullifies the sentence and then invites the convicted man into his home. He cares for his needs. He adopts the man as a son and includes him as an heir. This is the grace of God. Not only that he would show us mercy by withholding his wrath and not giving us what we deserve, justice, but that he would pour out blessing. Grace is indeed far beyond what we could ask or imagine. And when Christians think of grace, they almost immediately think of saving grace. And, and, and saving grace is part of God's grace. But God's grace is a multifaceted grace. The Bible explains that God pours out his grace on us in a lot of different ways. And the reality is we cannot plumb the depths of God's grace. A 40-minute sermon is woefully inadequate for even scratching the surface. But I want to point out to you four ways in which God manifests his grace in our lives. And then we'll conclude with a response together. So the first aspect of God's grace is common grace. It's common grace. This is grace that is common to all mankind. It's an experience of God's goodness and favor that is available to everyone. Look at Psalm 145 verse 9. It says, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. You heard it even in Richard's testimony. That's why I'm telling you, Richard just did a great job actually sharing about God's common grace today. He was talking about being out in creation and looking at God's beauty and looking at his goodness. That's available for everyone. That's God's favor. That's God's goodness. That's God's kindness that he pours out on all humanity. No matter who you are, where you're from, you can see the beauty and splendor and power of God in creation. But his common grace poured out on all takes shape in a lot of different ways. Have you ever wondered why the universe does not devolve into chaos? It's because of God's grace. Have you ever wondered why sin is restrained in the world, at least to some extent, so that we don't immediately collapse individually and as a society into a totally depraved state, it's because of the grace of God. Have you ever wondered why humankind is able to innovate, discover, and prosper? It's because of God's grace. Have you ever wondered why food has taste? It's because of the grace of God. Have you ever wondered what inspires great music, great art, and dance? God's grace is behind that. When you feel the sun on your face, sand underneath your toes, when you enjoy a day of sledding with your kids and they don't get injured, when you marvel at the autumn leaves, when you hear a child laugh, when you enjoy the company of a good friend, and yes, even when you watch hockey, 
It's all because of God's grace. These are not things that God owed us. They're not things that we earned. God poured out unmerited favor on us, and those aspects of his grace are common and available to all humankind. And now the doctrine of common grace should change our perspective, shouldn't it? Perhaps the next time you hear a symphony or enjoy a meal or read poetry, perhaps the next time you go to a museum or drive with the top down, I know that feels like a long way away, perhaps the next time you even ask Siri a question, understand that what's driving innovation and creation and restraining sin in our world is God's common grace, his favor for all humankind. And in those moments... Thank the God who is gracious to all. This is the second type of God's grace. It's called a saving grace. This is a grace that saves, a grace that redeems, a grace that regenerates. God's saving grace is efficacious only for those who respond to the call to repent and believe. So his common grace is available for all, and his saving grace is poured out on those who respond to God's call. So in God's saving grace, he calls the sinner to repentance, he regenerates the human heart, and he changes our eternal destination. Look up here on the screen at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, again, which Richard already quoted, all right? Like I told you. For by grace you have been saved. This is the reason that we're saved, because of God's unmerited favor, his blessing that he poured out on us that we didn't deserve. You've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your own doing, just to be clear. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Paul can't be any more clear here, so that no one can boast. So even remember, as we celebrate baptism and communion as a family of God, today baptism and in two weeks communion, those things don't save us. They're just reflections of what's already happened. God pouring out unearned favor, free goodness onto those he loves. We didn't earn salvation, but God, because he is gracious, extends that favor that we did not deserve. And once we've been redeemed and experienced God's saving grace, God's grace is also a sanctifying grace. It's a sanctifying grace. Now, sanctification is kind of a big word and a theological word, and it's a real simple word. It just means becoming more like Jesus in our thoughts, affections, and behavior. So sanctifying grace is a grace that sets us apart, that makes us more like Jesus. It's a grace that produces Holiness. So C.S. Lewis said that uh, God's grace sets Christianity apart. I would add that God's grace also sets us apart. God's grace sets us apart from the world. It produces holy living. God's grace is the reason why we're instruments in his hands for world change. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2. We just read verse 8 and 9. We're just going to read verse 10. It's up here on the screen. After Paul talks a lot about God's grace in our salvation, look what he says. It's just the next verse. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul connects God's grace with our good works. But notice, it's so important, it's not our good works that inspire the grace of God. Rather, God's sanctifying grace makes us more like Jesus every day and drives us 
into the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. God was under no obligation to do this. He was under no compulsion to do this. We didn't earn this, but God, because he's gracious, includes us in his kingdom purposes. He allows us to participate in this ministry of reconciling the world unto himself. Because he is gracious, he prepared good works in advance for us to do. Now that's pretty cool. Finally, the Bible says that God's grace is a liberating grace. It's a liberating grace. This is a grace that sets us free. A grace that sets us free. I love Paul's letter to the Galatian church. Uh, it's, it, it, if you don't kind of get the context of the letter, it can be a little bit confusing. But, but, but here's the deal. Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian church, the, the point of his letter is he wants to explain to them how grace has set them free. Grace has set them free from the law. Grace has set them free from sin. Grace has set them free from the bondage that used to control them. I love the way Paul talks to his church. He says, uh, oh, you foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you trying to achieve things by works of the law? Look what Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1 about God's liberating grace. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, for this reason, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If it were not for the grace of God, we would still be slaves to sin, bound by our own desires, captives to low self-esteem, trapped by addiction, and caught in shame. But because of God's grace, because of his unmerited favor, he frees the captives and breaks chains and liberates the oppressed. So if that's you this morning, if you're bound, if you're trapped in sin and shame, if you're shackled by addiction or fear, draw near to the liberating grace of God and find freedom like you've never known. He is a gracious God and his grace sets us free. We're going to conclude in response this morning, even as a worship team comes up, to lead us in one more song. And as they do that, I want to tell you a story of a man who knew God's liberating grace in a way that most people don't. This man had been held captive by an abusive background and a broken home. He was trapped by his own greed and bound by habits. His boss, who was a pirate, seriously, once said of him that he was the most profane man he ever met, that he invented more vulgar words than most men know. He spent most of his adult life in human trafficking. He would apprehend massive amounts of people by any means necessary and sell them into slavery. But when he experienced the free and unmerited favor of God, when he experienced God's liberating grace for himself, his life changed radically. The result was a life dedicated to setting others free physically by working to abolish slave trade and then working to introduce people to God's liberating grace so they experienced freedom as well. At the end of his life, that man would write these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. As we conclude with this chorus this morning that John Newton wrote so many years ago, amazing grace, how sweet the sound even as the band starts with this verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And we look back on that moment where we experienced God's saving grace for the first time. Immerse yourself in the ocean that is God's amazing grace. Thank Him for His common grace. Praise Him for His saving grace. Adore Him for His sanctifying grace. And worship Him 
for his liberating grace. Our God is gracious. These guys have added a little bit of pep, a little bit of punch to this song this morning. I'm glad that they did. So it gives us the opportunity to celebrate and lift our voices high. They've not messed with the melody of Amazing Grace, so nobody panic, okay? And sing right along with them. It's not going to be complicated. But as we respond to this God who is gracious, let's lose ourselves in worship just for a moment together. Feel free to raise your hand, even if you're, you know, kind of like Baptist like me and we do this thing, you know. You just, just let yourself be lost in the ocean that is the amazing grace of God. Just you and the Lord together. So many of you know these lyrics, like the back of your hand, they're rooted in your heart and familiar. Just close your eyes and just be with the Lord as we respond to our gracious God. Let's stand together and sing.